You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Well, good evening. It's good to see you tonight. If you would, please join with me in turning to the book of Colossians chapter 2. This evening, I want you to look with me, if you would, to verse 16. I'm actually going to refer to some of the verses that precede these, but I want to, just for the sake of time, I'll begin reading with verse 16 and read down to verse 23. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, no one is to judge you in food and drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, going into detail about visions he has seen, being puffed up for nothing by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? Do not handle, nor taste, nor touch, which deal with everything destined to perish with use, which are in accordance with the commands and teachings of men which are matters having, to be sure, a word of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. I want you to underscore this phrase in your mind, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. But are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask His blessing on our time and His word tonight. Father in heaven, thank you for this church. Thank you for all that you have been doing and continue to do in our midst. Thank you for all of those whom you've added to this congregation and how you've brought us together in this very time to serve you shoulder to shoulder, having the joy of giving our lives for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others, for the sake of Christ. Lord, at the same time, we want to be sure that we're not ignorant of the schemes of Satan. We want to be alert, vigilant at all times. And so as we deal with the subject matter before us in these verses tonight, would you grant that the things that have been on my mind and heart and that I've learned from this text, Lord, would be made clear. Help me to clearly communicate the things that you would have me to say. And Lord, would you grant in our listening that assistance, that power, that help that allows us to grasp the things that are shared, that they would go down into our hearts in a way that's edifying for us, helpful, that actually advances us in our walk with you. We joyfully acknowledge that this church is yours, that the head of this church and every church is the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are all a blood-bought people belonging to you, precious to you, cared for by you. Lord, would you shepherd us tonight through the preaching of your word, the work of your spirit, in a way that we don't soon forget, that we walk away changed by. And we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the world of the New Testament, there were two polar opposite errors that confronted the church as it lived in a licentious world. We have an increasing understanding of what it means to live in a licentious world. The longer that we live in our time, the more our world looks like the world of the first century church. Their world, our world, filled with gross immorality. Living in a world that assaults every godly standard a world that normalizes perversion, a world in which false Christianity or 
unfaithful Christianity relaxes biblical truth. And so the question rises in our hearts and minds, how do we live faithful lives? How do we live pure lives? How, how do we live holy lives in such an immoral world? And coming to the church as proposed answers for that problem are these two polar opposite errors. They are errors. And so if we're to live faithful lives, holy lives, pure lives, we have to recognize these two errors and we have to shun them. We have to resist them. On the one end of the spectrum, there were those holding to a false view of grace. They excused sin. Sometimes they even gloried in the deeds of the flesh. God's grace used as an excuse to go on in sins that Christ died to set us free from. The New Testament is clear about this, addresses this problem. 1 Peter 2.16, for example, says, Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. You are free to serve God, not free to serve sin. Book of Jude, the fourth verse says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. When you distort grace into an excuse for sin, you are denying Jesus as Master and Lord. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So there is that error that you find in the New Testament. There's the church existing in a very immoral world, and there were some who came and basically said, don't worry about any of that, because after all, we stand in the grace of God. And so understanding grace, living in grace, means not really to be too concerned about sinful behavior. We've dealt with that error many times as we've made our way together through the New Testament. That is something that this church is alert to, we, we, we do battle with. Most churches striving to be faithful that would practice, for example, church discipline, they are not going to say that grace excuses us living in sin. That, that is usually not our temptation. But there's another error, equally deadly. Uh, it's, it's very deceptive because it, on, on its face it doesn't seem as deadly because this particular error appeals as something that calls actually for a greater spiritual commitment, for greater zeal, greater concern greater devotion, but it too is an error, and one that is especially dangerous for a church like ours that takes the Bible seriously. We will tip our hat to this error, saying that we see it, we acknowledge it, we don't want to be guilty of it, and yet I believe if we're not careful, we could be guilty of it. Because maybe we don't struggle to resist this one as much as we struggle to resist the other one. And the error that I'm talking about tonight is the error of behavioral legalism. Behavioral legalism. And I qualify with the word behavioral because I'm not talking about a system by which you are attempting to save yourself. I'm not talking about legalism as you most often see it in the New Testament people trying to earn their way to heaven by keeping the law. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something that appeals to Christians. That people who are on their way to heaven and see the fleshly indulgence all around them and even recognize the fleshly lusts within their own lives, people who want to please God, people who are looking for answers, brought to them 
from outside the realm of sound doctrine, healthy teaching, is this error that offers answers. Legalism. I mention it, but I'll say it again. Most of the time when you see this in the New Testament, you are talking about a system by which people are trying to save themselves. However, what you also recognize is how those people can be an influence on God's people can sort of rub off on God's people, can serve as an intimidating influence when it comes to God's people. For example, Galatians 3.1 says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith. How were you converted? When did you come to Christ? How did you come to Christ? How did you receive the Spirit of God? Was it when you achieved some level of obedience, or was it when you heard the good news of of, a free grace salvation and you believed in Christ? Are you so foolish? These are the key words for what I'm talking about tonight. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Does God call us now to live by a different principle than that we met with when He saved us? Or is it that we're to continue on in the same way in which we met with Christ? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In fact, Galatians 5.16 goes on to say this, But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How do you not gratify fleshly desires? Answer, walk by the Spirit. Interesting, isn't it, that when Jesus prayed for us, that high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, He specifically addresses our relationship to the world around us. And He prays in the 15th verse, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. His prayer for us is not isolation, but I guess we could say insulation. That that in, in walking by His Spirit, in loving Him, we would be kept from the evil one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writing to the Corinthians about a sin issue in the church, he says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. They haven't been dealing with a sin issue and they've been sort of glorying in a misunderstanding of grace. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And then he says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. Sounds like what Jesus prayed for us in John 17, 15, doesn't it? I'm not telling you to go out of the world. He goes on to say, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now here's what I want you to think about. Why does Paul feel the need to add verses 9 and 10? When he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning 
the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Why does he feel the need to write that? Isn't it because believers can misunderstand our struggle? We struggle to understand the nature of our battle. We struggle to understand how we are meant to conduct it. And if we're not careful, we find ourselves trying to conquer fleshly lusts by fleshly means. Trying to conquer the immorality around us and within us in a power that is not representing the power of the Spirit of God. It is our own way of dealing with sin. We can be tempted toward monasticism. You know what monasticism is? You try to sort of pull out of the world. Or you could say protectionism. And there's a lot of that in the Lord's church. The idea that the way to be kept pure is to sort of put up a wall around ourselves. Defensive Christian living. Protectionism. We can be tempted toward behaviorism, just focusing on our externals, our behaviors. We can be tempted toward asceticism. To think that self-denial by itself equals holiness. We can even be tempted toward mysticism, looking for some sort of mystical solution to the problem of sin. And all of these can be elements of legalism. What is legalism? Let me give you some ways to think about it. The kind of legalism I have in mind, that behavioral legalism that Christians can be prone to. What is legalism? It is man's attempt to add his own standards to the Word of God. Now, because I'm, I'm, I'm assuming here, okay, I'm talking to believers, because I know you love Christ, because I know you believe the Bible, because I know you know that walking by the Spirit is walking in the Word of God. I don't believe that we do this consciously. I think it happens to us sometimes unconsciously that we end up taking our own standards and adding it to what the Bible teaches. Or we try to boil down biblical truth in such a way that we can reduce it to something we can manage. Can I reduce the Christian life to a system, to a list of do's and don'ts? Can I reduce the Christian life to my own philosophy? of living, to my own applications, to my way. Here's my way of living the Christian life. That can be legalism. Man's attempt to achieve practical righteousness by his own standards and by his own means. Trying to reduce sanctification in one area of life or in the whole to a list of rules to an expected standard of do's and don'ts that you and I might attempt to base on the Scriptures, but we cannot say are commanded by the Scriptures. Can you show me chapter and verse? Can you show me where the Bible says it? No. But I feel really strongly about it. And so we take our own convictions, our own conscience, our own preferences, our own philosophy, our own standards, and we impose it on others. We judge others as if it is the Word of God. It is just to, to take your conscience, your practices, your own applications of Scripture, and you treat it like it's the law of God. And what makes it deadly, not only clearly it is wrong, it's powerless. I mean, it doesn't work. That's why I drew your attention earlier to the end of verse 23, which are matters having to be sure a word of wisdom, that is to say an expression, it promises to be an expression of wisdom. It gives the appearance of being wisdom. But it's self-made religion and it's self-abasement and it's severe treatment of the body, notice, but are of no value. No value against fleshly indulgence. Powerless when it comes to true holiness. No value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. In fact, you can note this tonight. Legalism will never restrain the flesh. It stirs up the flesh. 
when you treat your personal standards like the law of God, it might change a life behaviorally, it might change a life externally, but it has no power to transform a life spiritually. It can produce conformity, but it doesn't produce Christ-likeness. Let me tell you what it does produce. Legalism produces trouble. It produces, in a church, it produces pride, it produces strife, it produces judgmentalism, it produces division, it harms people, it cripples them spiritually. They get confused. They think they're overcoming because their life changes externally. They're conforming. They're following the rules. They're walking in step with everybody else. But what they're experiencing is just that. It is behaviorism. It is external. It doesn't represent the spirit of God's work, which transforms a life inside out. And so you feel like you're overcoming, but in fact, you're being overcome. You're losing to a false view of the Christian life. You're losing to a pride that will grow as you congratulate yourself on what is in fact a counterfeit holiness. If holiness could be measured only by external factors, then the Pharisees could have never been called whitewashed tombs. They would have been praised because externally they were clean, but internally they were full of death. The text that we look at tonight warns us about this. It tells us about approaches to fleshly lusts that have the appearance of wisdom. They make people feel better about themselves and about those who agree with them. But in fact, they're of no value. So tonight, I want us to think together about a powerless answer for powerful problems. Sin is a powerful problem. But legalism is a powerless answer. It is not sufficient to deal with the problem. Now, one word I want to give you in advance as we walk through this. Whenever you deal, when you, when you, have, when you have polar opposite errors and you only deal with one side of the issue, which is what I'm going to do tonight, people might be tempted to misunderstand and think that you're actually running to the other side of the spectrum. As I said earlier, I want to say this again. Grace abuse is perversion. Grace is never an excuse to go on in the sins for which Jesus died. If you understand the grace of God, grace will be a tutor to you. It will be a teacher to you, and it will teach you to deny ungodliness in this present world. So there is no such thing as holiness without fighting sin, without dealing with sin. What I'm talking about, though, is you have to deal with sin in the way God ordained, not in the way some man constructed. So tonight, the error I want us to think about is this powerless solution for a powerful problem, legalism. Three points tonight, we'll just deal with them one at a time. Here's the first one. I want us to think about the specific problem being faced in Colossae. The specific problem being faced in Colossae. Before you can take these truths and transfer them into the present, before we can deal with our own lives, we need to be clear about what was going on in this church. And honestly, it's a little tough to pin down because until the eighth verse of the second chapter, Paul is dealing with the error represented in this chapter. He's dealing with it vaguely. Beginning with verse 8, it begins to be more specific, so we can put some of the elements of it together. But even then, it's difficult to pin down exactly what the error consisted of. But I think it's fair to say what they were having to do battle with and be on the alert about was a religious philosophy, a religious philosophy that had three elements. There was a Jewish element to the error. You saw this as we read the verses, feast days, Sabbaths, dietary restrictions. So there was a Jewish element to this error. It was also mixed with a philosophical element. They lived in a world that loved wisdom, loved human wisdom. And so it seems there was that mixed in along with the restrictions from the Old Testament law. This is why he talks about 
To be sure, it has an expression of wisdom or the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion. And we'll deal more in just a moment about, he talks about human traditions and all the things that have to do with things that emerge from men. So there's a wisdom element wrapped up in this. And then there's mysticism wrapped up in it. Because he talks about visions and he talks about the worship of angels. This error then represents syncretism. It's a mixing together of ideas, syncretism, the amalgamation or attempted amalgamation of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought. You take from various places, you mix this thing together, and there's your philosophy. Well, they were battling with something like that. A philosophy trying to make inroads into the church at Colossae that involved a Jewish element, a wisdom element, a mystical element. Quick note to nail down in your thinking. Legalism is almost always syncretistic. Because what it does is it tends to take something that is true and authoritative and try to mix it with what is not authoritative. It will take from the Scriptures, for example, and then try to mix that with my own application of the Scripture or my own ideas about those Scriptures My own philosophy based on those scriptures, we take what is authoritative, what doesn't have equal authority, we mix it together, but then we hold everybody accountable for the mixture. Not for the scriptures, but for the mixture. This is what they're doing in Colossae. They're mixing together these philosophies. Misunderstanding the Old Testament law, human wisdom, mysticism. Verse 16, you see an insistence on Old Testament dietary laws. Therefore, no one is to judge you in food and drink. You also see an insistence on Old Testament calendar observances or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. You see an insistence on asceticism. Verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. Self-abasement. American Standard has the same thing, self-abasement. The reason why they translate it that way is the word itself has to do with humility. In fact, it can be translated in positive context as humility. The reason why the ESV, LSB have asceticism is because the larger context seems to indicate that this humility was thought of in terms of self-denial. As he goes on to say in verse 21, do not handle, nor taste, nor touch, which are matters, verse 23, having to be sure a word of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. So this humility was evidenced by your self-denial. And in Colossae, in the physical realm, what you deny your body. But make no mistake about it, this is false humility. False humility in the form of do-nots. If you avoid the do-nots, if you do what we expect, then you are humble. But if you don't, then you're proud. They promoted angelic mysticism. Verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels. Going into detail about visions he has seen, being puffed up for nothing by his fleshly mind. Difficult to know exactly what this was. Maybe they talked a lot about appealing to the angels for protection, and Paul equates that with worship. Or maybe, tied together with this idea of visions, maybe they were claiming to be able to see into the heavenly realm and join in with the worship of the angels. Maybe it's not they're worshiping the angels. Maybe they conceived of themselves as worshiping with the angels. And it is even a possibility that they connected the bodily self-denial with these visions, fastings, things of that nature. Maybe they thought contributed to this mind that allowed them to connect up into this realm and worship with the angels. But what this all added up to was man-made religion, a philosophy that existed because of human construction. Throughout this entire section, Paul emphasizes the human origins of this philosophy. 
Verse 8, he talks about the tradition of men. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men. He says in verse 18, these visions are the product of a puffed up and sensuous mind. In verse 22, he talks about human precepts, the teachings of men the LSB has. Verse 23, he talks about self-made religion. Everything he's talking about, is its origin is man, not God. And what does he mean by the elemental spirits or the elementary principles of the world the LSB has? I think the ESV has the elemental spirits of the world. I think what he has in mind, and, and the LSB reflects this, he's talking about the basic building blocks of how this world operates. And he's looking at it from the spiritual side, from the mind of man. How does this world think? How does this world operate? And what he's saying is this legalistic philosophy was simply giving expression to worldly thinking in spiritual garb. You're doing what lost man is capable of, but you're doing it in the name of Jesus. You do know lost people are capable of behavior modification. This is why people go to clinics where they beat habits. They can overcome things, in many cases, modify their behavior. Lost man is capable of self-denial, even extreme self-denial. Saw a picture, I think it was yesterday, the day before, of some guy involved in false religion that his right arm was absolutely shriveled up. The left arm was normal because in the name of his false god, he'd been holding up his right arm for like 30 years. Lost humanity capable of self-discipline. Lost people can keep a list of do's and don'ts. You do this, you don't do this, this is good, this is not good. Lost people keep religious calendars. Lost people can keep up with religious duties. But what lost mankind doesn't have is Christ. Access to the head. This is what Paul is concerned about, verses 18 and 19. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, going into detail about visions he has seen being puffed up for nothing by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head. That's Jesus. From whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows. How do you grow? You grow as you hold fast to Christ. Legalism doesn't have that power. There's nothing in it that is living. There's nothing in it that is life-giving, life-transforming. That power belongs to a relationship to the Son of God. This is how our lives are being transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ. It's as we hold fast to Christ. And we know who we are in Him and what we've been given in Him and the sufficiency that belongs to Him. And we're living in that fellowship with Him. That's how our lives are transformed. Not by a set of rules, not by a system that people come up with. So what characterized the error in Colossae? They insisted on Old Testament dietary laws. They insisted on Old Testament calendar observances. They insisted on a false kind of humility. They promoted angelic mysticism. It all added up to a philosophy. And what made it powerful, and you note this, this is true of all legalism, what made it especially powerful was the claim of superiority. Running through this error, what made it powerful was it was condescending. It presented itself as superior. This has always been the power of legalism, the air of preeminence. It is made powerful by its partitions. This is, this is why, though it promises freedom, it takes people captive. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive that no one makes you their slave through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Don't be taken captive. 
Because what legalism does is it partitions off those who will not go along and proudly claims the power to judge you. Verse 16, therefore no one is to judge you in food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. They claim the power to pronounce whether you gain a reward or lose a reward. The question about how to translate what you see at the beginning of verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. Maybe what he has in mind there is their pronouncement that you're not in the right place. You're going to lose reward. You don't, you're not worthy of reward if you live like you're living. You've got to join us. You've got to do it like we're doing it. So if you, if you add all this up together, what do we see going on in Colossae? They claim humility. They are in fact puffed up. They imagine themselves the judges. They claim to stand in the place of wisdom. They have a way that you're supposed to live that is a mixture of Scripture that has been misunderstood and personal standards that are being misapplied. It is syncretistic. It is a mixture and the mixture doesn't have the authority that they pretend it has. They want to treat it like, like it's the law of God. When in fact it's a, it's a mixture. The mixture has no authority. Now, point number two. That's the error you're seeing in Colossae. Point number two. What are the spiritual principles that belong to legalism in every generation. Tonight we're not dealing with someone trying to teach this church to worship the angels in whatever form they were teaching it. You're not meeting with a mixture of Old Testament dietary laws and calendar observances and asceticism, and you're not meeting with that. So whatever we're going to face in our lives, it's going to be different than that. But you can know this, satanic fleshly substitutes, or you could say that which arises out of the fleshly mind of man, it comes in many different forms, but it has the same basic principles. They never change. There will always be someone ready to teach you how to fight the flesh in a fleshly way. And it's going to be attractive because you genuinely want to please God. And you don't want to be second rate. And you don't want to be left out. And so it has this power of superiority so that if you don't go along, you feel like you're on the outside. You've got to recognize it. You've got to resist it. So what are the principles? What are the basic principles that show up again and again throughout church history? What characterizes legalism? Let me give you a few things. First of all, legalism is proud, but it feels humble. It's proud, but it feels humble. In fact, it talks a lot about humility. But it's proud. And one of the reasons why it feels humble sort of goes like this. How can I not be humble seeing how much I refuse myself? Seeing how much I refuse myself, how could this not be humility? So I want you to remember something. All self-denial that is not commanded by Scripture is a personal choice. All self-denial that is not commanded by Scripture is a personal choice. It may be a good choice. It may be for your life the right choice. But as soon as you begin to judge other people, to stratify other people, Based on your personal choices, you are no longer operating in the realm of humility. You are operating in the realm of pride. Why? Because God and His Word is no longer the judge. Your standards have become the judge. You can't point to Scripture. You just have your take on Scripture. You have your application of Scripture. But it's not Scripture. And so your standards have been substituted for God's. I would say that's pride but it feels humble because in this era and throughout history, legalism usually involves a heavy emphasis on what you don't do. How can I be proud when I'm so self-denying? Second, legalism 
confidently judges, but its standards are wrong. This, I mentioned it, but let me just underscore it. This is the element of pride. You have taken your own personal ruler and you're applying it to other people as if that ruler is Scripture. And I warn you, dear ones, listen, this can just exist in your heart. You may never say it to another person. You may never try to impose it on another person. But as soon as your personal standard becomes the standard for judgment and you truly begin to regard brothers and sisters as being beneath you because they don't live up to your personal standard, that's pride. That is the definition of judgmentalism. You have substituted yourself in the seat of the judge. And the standard is your standard, not God's standard. Legalism confidently judges. But it's got the wrong standard. Third, legalism falsely equates personal standards with purity. You can't help for this third one to happen. If the first two things are happening, the third one is going to happen. That is, you no longer view your personal standards as preferences. You now begin to view them and treat them as matters of sin and righteousness. If you don't do what I believe you ought to do in this situation, then you have sinned. It's not just, I think there's a better way for you, or can I give you advice or counsel? No, now now you have crossed into the territory where you actually begin to treat people as if they have sinned because they don't agree with your standard. So that wisdom is defined by your standard and holiness is defined by your standard. Legalism falsely equates personal standards with holiness, with purity. And again, you may never say it to a person. You just think it. Just carry it around with you in your heart. You don't have Scripture, a command from Scripture you can point to. It's your application of it. And you're judging others as if they violated Scripture. Fourth, because of those three things, legalism is highly suspicious. This should not surprise us. When you sit in the seat of measuring everybody else, then everybody else becomes suspect. If you're the judge, then everybody else needs to be under examination. I think I've shared this with you before, you know, the humorous description. I distrust everybody but me and you. And sometimes I don't trust you. That's the legalist. He trusts nobody really but himself. He trusts no judgment really but his own. Constantly examining others, constantly measuring others, weighing others, so that everyone is worthy to be a suspect. In fact, you read the book of Galatians and you find these legalists, it's almost like they're running a sting operation. Galatians 2.4, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. That then we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. I mean, there were people, these Judaizers, planted in the congregation for the purpose of influence, like an undercover operation. This can begin to exist in churches where we're constantly watching one another with suspicious eyes. And that's when you'll know legalism has taken root. There is no generosity. There is no graciousness. There is no believing the best. Legalism is highly suspicious. I mentioned this, but I want to say it again. Legalism often joins a misunderstanding of Scripture with spiritual mysticism. You say, well, what might be a modern example of that? I've seen it many times, and it goes like this. I take what I know of Scripture, and I judge you not by a violation of Scripture that I can quantify, but by my instinct. I mean, I just feel like you might not be doing well. 
I think I'm doing okay. No. No, you know, I've got this sense. And we begin to deal with other people, not based upon anything that is objective, but something subjective. That is mysticism. And I want to be clear, God does grant instincts. But even if you're someone that God has granted really good instincts, you've got to, in your own mind, you've got to make clear to your own heart, my instincts are fallible. They must not be given authority. I can be wrong about what I sense. R. Kent Hughes said what I believe for ages, and he just said it. You ever read something like that? You go, man, there it is. Listen to what he said. The idea that spirituality can be quantified provides an unfortunate basis for pride and judgmentalism. The flesh finds doing truly spiritual things difficult as the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. But the flesh has no problem with religious rules and regulations. There's an authentic lure to legalism but it spawns judgmentalism. Judgmentalism is miserable for the judged and the judging because it shrivels our souls. Legalism is intrinsically joyless. As the savage tribesman observed when a missionary was trying to convert him, the tribesman was very old and the missionary was very Old Testament with a version of Christianity which leaned very heavily on the thou shalt nots. After listening to what the missionary said, the tribesmen replied, to be old and to be Christian, they are the same thing. Legalism also demands uniformity. Whenever you find legalism dominant, you will find people who dress the same way and use the same speech, posture, and manners, even the same facial expressions. Do not produce a grotesque uniformity. Lastly, such legalism produces a surface faith because its adherents emphasize the things which are not really important. Their do-nots ignore deadly sins such as coveting, gossiping, slandering, bitterness, and hatred. Legalism limits one to shallow self-righteousness and thus damns him. We can fall to legalism and its attendant self-righteousness, joylessness, and judgmentalism. We can succumb to mysticism and develop a proud, elitist spirit which contributes nothing to true worship. We can get into asceticism, thinking it will make us more holy when it actually will feed our flesh. Close quote. He's right. Oh, God, help us that legalism doesn't take root in this church. It will make us joyless. We might all look the same, but it's going to be a surface-level uniformity. It won't represent the spirit of God's work. It'll be externalism, behaviorism, but it won't be the work of the Spirit of God. It won't be the work of the Word of God. These are the principles that characterize legalism throughout the ages. It's proud, but it feels humble. Confidently judges, but its standards are wrong. Falsely equates its standards with holiness. Is highly suspicious and joins its misunderstanding of Scripture with mysticism so that it feels confident and competent to judge your heart. So how do we escape it? We don't have time to deal in depth with this, but let me just point out three things Paul says to the Colossians about how to escape it, and then I want to take just a moment to think this through with you practically before we finish tonight. How do you escape it? First of all, verse 6. You've got to continue how you began. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and being built up in Him, and having been established in your faith just as you were instructed, and abounding with thanksgiving. What was it like when the Lord saved you? You didn't have a system, you didn't have a set of rules. You received the free, full forgiveness of your sins in Christ Jesus, and you had the Word of God. And you were full of thanksgiving because you were one of His delivered ones. 
and you loved Him. You read the Bible because you loved Him. You shared the gospel because you loved Him. Sin grieved you because you loved Him. Can I tell you something? True love for Jesus Christ is sufficient to conform you to His image. Without the Word of God, of course not. To walk in love is to walk in the Scriptures. To walk by the Spirit is to walk in the Scriptures. But the motivational element present in that is love for Christ. Not looking over my shoulder to make sure I'm pleasing everyone who's examining me. How did you start? That's how you continue. How do you avoid this? You remember that in Christ you have everything you need for life and godliness. You have been forgiven. You have freedom. You have fullness. See to it that no one takes you captive, verse 8, through philosophy and empty deception according to the, to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ, for in Him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in Him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority, in whom you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hand. I mean, God changed your heart. The flesh is still in you, but you're no longer in the flesh. God has taken hold of you, and He will never let you go. And the good work that He began in you, we can be fully confident He will finish. My job, the elder's job in this church, is to shepherd you, but it's not to sanctify you. It's to point you to the one who does sanctify you. And this is something you see consistently in Paul's letters, sometimes in a way that amazes us. You'll see a church that's in real trouble, 1 Corinthians comes to mind, and yet he's praising the church and thanking God for so many good things in them, and he expresses his confidence that the Lord will do His work in their lives. Legalism uh, takes root in places where we think God isn't, apparently, He isn't sufficient to grow His people. You need my system. And if you don't have my system, you're not going to achieve growth. It's crazy. And it needs to be rejected. We've been buried with Him in baptism. We've been raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. We were dead in our transgressions and the uncircumcision of our flesh, but He made us alive with Him, having graciously forgiven us of all of our transgressions. Verse 14, He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. They were hostile to us. He was also taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made, it, made, him, made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in Him. Your salvation is in Him. So you are forgiven, you are free, and there's this fullness that belongs to you, everything you need for life and godliness you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we influence each other? Yes. Do we disciple each other? Yes. Do we have mentors in the church? Of course. Older women teaching younger women. Older men teaching. All of those things are true. Remember what I said at the beginning. I'm not running over to that end of the spectrum. I'm trying to emphasize something we had better do battle with also. And that's the idea that you need some sort of supplementation that comes from people instead of recognizing what you have in Jesus. If that makes sense, would you say amen? So remember this, you have this fullness in Christ, which means, third, you refuse to be taken captive by man-made religion. You refuse it. Verse 16, therefore, no one is to judge you. You don't give in to it. You don't yield to it. Like we read earlier in Galatians, we didn't yield in submission to them for a moment. Galatians 2.4, yet because a false brother secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Here's the principle. If my freedom injures you, then I need to limit my freedom because I love you. But if you're someone who just wants to take my freedom away, if you're someone lording over my conscience, I do not yield to that. I love you, but I can't yield to something that confuses 
the very message of the gospel itself. Because the one who saved me is sanctifying me. And he will finish what he started. If you die tomorrow, he's going to sanctify me. If your system dies with you, I'm going to be okay. Because I have Christ and his word and the spirit of God who lives in my soul. And he has taken hold of me and he will never let me go. Let me finish by thinking this through very quickly, practically. How do we live this out? I've talked in broad terms about how we resist it. Continue as you started. Remember that you have this fullness in Christ Jesus. Refuse to be taken captive by man-made religion. How do you live it out? Number one, differentiate between biblical commands and personal applications or personal wisdom. Can you do that? I'm talking about now this is something we have to do in our own lives, in our own mind. I'm talking about your standards, not somebody else's. Your standards. Do you distinguish in your thinking between what the Bible says and what you have done with what the Bible says? Do you know the difference? And this is self-limitation. This is what's necessary for you and I to be faithful to Christ. I don't want to ever be guilty of imposing on you or anybody else my standard. There's got to be a difference in my own thinking between thus says the Lord and what I have done with what the Lord has said. Make that distinction in your thinking. Second, recognize where you've begun to treat a personal application like a biblical command. Can you see it where you've done that before? Where you've taken your application of Scripture and now you've treated it like it's a command from God. How does that show up? It shows up in how you view other people. Be honest with yourself. Have you ever looked down on someone else not because they're violating Scripture, but because they're violating your application of Scripture. What is your expectation concerning other believers? Do you sort of leave the impression, if you're really going to be faithful, you have to conform to my standards? Do you pick and choose associations with other believers, not based upon Scripture, but based upon your applications of Scripture? Your conversations with and about other believers. Do you find yourself suspicious of slandering people? Not because they're violating Scripture, but because they're violating your application of Scripture. Make the distinction in your mind and then ask yourself, where have I been treating application like it's a biblical command? Or personal wisdom like it's a biblical command? Third, when dealing with personal application, do not plow through your conscience. So you say, you're right, Pastor, I see the difference between a biblical command and my application of it. I guess I just need to sort of jettison my personal applications. No, that's not what we learn from God's Word at all. Some of your personal wisdom is good and right. In fact, some of what you hold to is going to be safer and better than what someone else chooses. In fact, you might be right to the degree that one day you see them suffer a bit because they have a different position on something that you hold strongly to. That still doesn't give you the right to treat your application like it has the authority of Scripture. That's when you pray for someone. You might give them counsel, but what you don't ever do is treat them like they're sinning because they're violating your application. Nor does it mean that you just throw away your application. I'll give you an example. Here's a practical example. I've done now, I think, two long series we dealt with what the Bible teaches about alcohol. And in both those series, I made clear to you, I cannot say that someone who drinks alcohol is sinning. Why? Because there's no command to that effect. But as a pastor, if I had my way, this would be a teetotaling church. No one would drink. Why? Because if you sat in my seat, our seat, and you saw how many problems we're dealing with related to alcohol... And if you understood how even your example might influence someone else in a way that's going to harm them eventually, you might have a different perspective of it. So when I see especially young people who not only practice that liberty, but they flaunt it, they advertise it, you're looking at immaturity. You're looking really at a lack of love. But what I will not do is... Walk into a restaurant and see you with a glass of wine on the table and tip it over on my way by. <laughs> and not speak to you at church come Sunday. 
I've got to differentiate in my own thinking. Biblical command, personal application. But I'm going to tell you this, you're not going to see me, by the grace of God, I would say, drinking that glass of wine at my table. Because I'm not going to throw away my own conscience just because it's not a biblical command. It's a personal application of some wisdom principles. Does that make sense? Which leads to my next practical point, that is, when dealing with personal application, don't trample on somebody else's conscience. So I can share what I believe and why I believe it and why I make the decisions I do, but then I have to set you free to deal with the Lord in your own conscience. In fact, I will injure you if I don't teach you that and if I don't allow you that. Now all of a sudden you become tied to my... I going to say skirt tails, but I don't want that. You know what I'm saying. To me, when if you are a faithful discipler, let me tell you something. You're not wedding people to yourself. You are wedding them to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are turning them, their eyes, their hearts, their focus on the one who bought them with His blood. We are all His sheep. We are His disciples. And so I don't want you to be like me. Only to the extent that my example might be helpful to you, praise the Lord. But I'm telling you, what I want is to be more like Jesus. And what I want for you is to be more like Jesus. There is a verse, Hebrews 13, 7, that teaches you can look at the example of your elders and see the outcome of their lives and imitate their faith. But it's interesting, it says imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. Our lives are transformed as we walk in the Word of God out of love for Jesus Christ. So don't trample on somebody else's conscience. And final thought, in all your ways, strive for what is true holiness. Not, not a faux holiness, not a fake holiness, not an external thing that's really a counterfeit. True holiness. What can you say about true holiness? Produced by the Spirit of God. Read it a moment ago, Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. It's produced by the Spirit of God. True holiness is found in the way of believing God. Holiness is produced in a faithful life, in a life that believes Scripture. Galatians 3.2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? No, you progress in the Christian life by hearing with faith. You believe the Bible and you walk in the truth. True holiness is first inward and then outward. I'm not denying it happens at the same time, but I'm saying if there is nothing inward, then whatever is outward is a lie. Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. True holiness is not measured by restrictiveness. This is perhaps the number one misunderstanding that holiness is measured by don't. And forgetting that for every don't, there is a do. And so as we pursue Christ with a heart of devotion, what we're going to find is we have joy. 1 Timothy 6.17, I love this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Don't set your heart on what you have. Set your heart on the one who gave it to you. So get rid of everything you have. Live in a monastery. Take a vow of poverty. Treat your body roughly. No. But on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Who is your God? He is a God who takes pleasure in the pleasure of His children. He's the God who put Adam and Eve in a garden full of everything wonderful one thing off limits that spoke of Him as God and them as not God. That's your God. 
the God who drove them out of that garden after they fell because they would have settled for something less than He's willing to give us all and has given us all in Christ Jesus. Lest they take of the tree of life and live forever in that condition, He drives them out because He has something better for us than we would choose for us. That's our God. A God who made this world that even under a curse, look at its beauty, look at its variety, look at its gifts. Legalism takes life and reduces it down to this narrow, grudging, joyless, suspicious existence. That's not holiness. That's a satanic counterfeit. No, your God has provided all sorts of things for you to enjoy, but you enjoy those things not apart from Him. You enjoy those things with Him preeminent in everything. Marriage is a joy, isn't it? But Christ is preeminent in marriage. Raising children is a joy, but Christ is preeminent in the home. I had someone who wrote me an email once and told me I was worldly because I liked the Dallas Cowboys. For real. Because I like football. I like football. But if pleasing Christ meant I gave it up tomorrow, I'd give it up. You understand? You can enjoy things and those things not have you. And that's... Our God, He gives us all sorts of things to enjoy, but they don't have us. He has us. He is preeminent in everything. So dear church, as we grow and as we come together with all sorts of backgrounds and different views, and perhaps some of those views are even about what's permissible and what isn't and how we ought to do this or do that, make the distinction between God's commands and your application. And don't become a legalist who sits in judgment of everybody else because they don't do it the way you do it. And keep pointing one another to Christ. Give counsel to each other. Help each other. Give advice. That's perfectly good. But then understand that your brother or sister's sanctification is ultimately in the hand of the one who saved them. And he's going to finish what he began. And that will turn us into a church of helpers not a church of law enforcement agents. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace to us and your Son. Thank you that that grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldliness in this present age and to live holy lives. But thank you that we have access to a true holiness that is a matter first and foremost of the heart so that we are not whitewashed tombs, we are not full of dead men's bones, that where there is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, there you're meeting with the kingdom of God. Lord, help us to love each other in a way that's generous, gracious, patient, forgiving, kind. Help us, Lord, to endure with each other, to continue even when we have challenges in friendships, relationships, fellowship, Lord, help us to love each other lavishly because we have received Your love lavishly. Help us to love each other as we've been loved. And in this, Lord, may You be glorified and may Your church please You. We ask for these things in Jesus' name.